dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. O'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Now the ground is white, go it while you're young. Take the girls tonight and sing this slaying song. Just get a bobtail nag, 240 for his speed. Then hitch him to an open sleigh and crack, you'll take the lead. Oh, but fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh, hey! Love that vibration, syncopation of a one-horse open sleigh. Let your license podcast and it's booked to screen and we're doing our interrupting of our program so we won't be doing once upon a time but we'll be covering something else we'll be covering anti-mame by patrick dennis and the 1958 film of the same name and before we get started let's find out who's with us we got vicky ray with us hello vicky hey boys what's up leandro gazi with us hello leandro hello how are you and davide cavallo hello davide hi everyone and I'm your host, Keith Shago. Before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. Starting with you, Leandro. What have you been up to since last time we've seen you? Uh, well, I've been uh, in Argentina for two weeks. Uh, came back, I've been working, um, going to the gym, and that's all. Life is uneventful for me, too. <laughs> what about yourself, Davide? <laughs> what have you been up to? For myself, um... No much, the usual. I've uh, been marathoning all the Harry Potter movie on Netflix. <laughs> I just get a lot of Harry Potter. I um, love all those. I could sit and watch them. I could binge the whole series in one day. Easy. It's it's amazing. I love it. I mean, I know that there's a lot of um, um, discussions around whether they should boycott the movies because That's of the stupid, but... author saying certain things. But don't get me wrong, I don't really have an opinion on that yet. I haven't really researched and stuff. I boycatted not... everybody I disagreed with. I would never watch anything. I had to learn to disseminate. It's like, this is their job. This is their belief. Love the story. Don't like the politics, but you can't disregard the good book writing. So. Well, I mean, yeah, 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 but our politics is something to do with trans 
they, the trans community. But it's all political. Yeah. It all falls under the true political realm now, kind of. Yeah, because they're I mean, really pushing it. Our there are left government. Well, yeah, I mean, I but the thing is, is they're against her because she said there because she said what she, her thoughts are, and then they and then they're trying to get everyone against her. So like that's stupid. Just because she doesn't believe in what you guys believe doesn't mean that she's wrong. Doesn't mean she has a different. I was opinion. not quite actually surprised that she did come out. I thought she was of the other persuasion, uh, you know. For that, I just I don't care. I love her books. You know, there's a lot of people I can't stand, but. I just like the movies and the books. It's just you can't boycott everything, you know. I mean, there. Are, I mean, to be honest, there are plenty of people that, you know, for instance, there's a lot of people I don't believe in their politics. Stephen King, I find his politics a bit diff different, different from me, so I don't really support them. But that, the but that doesn't stop me from reading Stephen King. No, yeah. I still like Stephen King. Hate his whatever that is he's doing these yeah, days precisely. but love precisely. his book no i love his books up until 1994 <laughs> then i don't really read too much of his books but but i'm never gonna i'm never gonna cancel anyone just because they have different beliefs than what i got so no, it's, it's getting ridiculous yeah but for me i've got also like a good connection because they're the harry <coughs> the harry potter mo um, books are the first british books i've ever read in this country did you so read all of them all of them, yes, in English. Oh, you did? You read the whole kit and caboodle. You're really yeah, an overachiever, yeah. so that was like a back. <laughs> that was back, I think it must have been maybe eight years ago, something like that. Those were the first British books I've read, and I loved them and cried and laughed so much. I mean, they were my she best. Put a lot into them. She did. So I, I have a lot of good memories uh, connected to the, to the did movie. Did you like the books as compared to the movies, or...? I have got to say the books are much, much better. because well, the books yeah. are always better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I I read all of them, plus the Tales of Beetle the Bard, and another one, The Course Child. And I remember what? that when I was reading one of them, I was in a bus, and I uh, deliberately didn't get out of the bus where I have to carry on reading because I wanted to know what was going to happen. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And then I have they, to walk like ten, 10 blocks backwards. <laughs> my only my only problem with the books is that it's kind of funny because I was reviewing children's books when the first one came out, so I got that one. So I didn't know what to, I had known. And then of course it was the, technically a children's book, the first one though. Well, yeah, they're, they're, it's young young adult fiction. So, um, but you know, it, it was okay. It wasn't it wasn't the best written book, but as you notice, I thought was quite funny that her writing style got better and better as each book, right? But the only thing that used to drive me up the wall about her books is that by the time you got to the fourth book, you had like 150 pages of what happened in the last three books before you before it started going over. And I was like, yeah, I don't know why she did that extra narrative, but I guess a lot of people didn't want to read the other books. So maybe it was for those yeah. just wanted to pick up the goblet, you know, and start reading that one. You know, yeah, I, I got a feeling, though, I, I don't think she expected people to, you know, read one and Numbers. go back. And, yeah, well, maybe not. Along, so. But but besides that, I mean, it was still great. I mean, oh, yeah, they're fun books. But they also expanded. I think they made a massive business out of it. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Oh, they did the franchise. Of, the franchise yeah, it's enormous. a perfect franchise, but they did lots of video games, one better than the other. And then they've been, obviously, you know, there's The Cursed Child as well. And I read the book and obviously I was a little bit disappointed because it's not really a book. It's kind of like a script of a theater play. Right. Um, but it's okay. Um, uh, they they have the Pottermore website where you can do all these activities and stuff and reading. Oh, no kidding! I didn't know that. 
And that's the official website called Bottom Line. And then obviously, oh, I didn't know that. The video, the video games, I think, are incredible because they created a whole world behind and everything. And then you I'm have just all... amazed at video creators. Anyway, I yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. always amazed when I see my grandson playing something. It's like, well, yeah, Harry, it's, it's I, mean, I just my jaws on the ground. I mean, Harry yeah. Potter even has a Lego Harry Potter computer game. Yeah, oh, yeah, I saw that. Played, um, I had Doesn't Lego get into everything, though, eventually? Lego's like got Indiana Jones. Lego does Star Wars. Well, Lego does just about everything. The only thing Lego no. doesn't do is the exercise. <laughs> I'm waiting for Linda Blair to... exorcist Lego building blocks. <laughs> they had to reinvent themselves to be there. That's all marketing. I'm money. telling you, somebody's going to make a lot of money out of the Linda Blair Legos. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> the Resident really Evil Lego games. game. <laughs> the Lego games are big. The Captain Howdy Lego uh, game. You, you, have you seen the, the the new movie? It's called The Flash. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, I I I saw it in the plane and I cried. So it was, for me, it was a really oh. good movie. I think it was interesting. sad. Interesting. But yeah, what about yeah. yourself, Vix? What are you even up to? Not a lot. We've just been hanging out. We got my new furnace and my AC in. Got the bill, almost swallowed the bottle of pills. That new car is just going to have to wait another year or two. Um, other than that, we haven't been doing too much. We just try to enjoy a chill of the holiday season. Um, I did finally finish the Exorcist series, and yeah, I had to be patient. Loved how they played the old movie into the first one. I don't know what I think about the, the end of it, though. I was kind of not disappointed, bittersweet kind of ending, maybe sort of. I lost his steam in the second season. Something went a bit wrong with it. Yeah, just something happened. But, I, I mean, it was still well done. And I finally got to watch that new Exorcist movie yesterday. It started streaming on Peacock. I was kind of all excited about it, but I was so disappointed. And then I got a couple of the other um, forums. I even saw Matthew saw it too, and he said he was mad that he actually paid to go see that theater. It was really tropey. It was Linda Blair squared with two girls. You cannot touch the original, no matter how much people try, except for the third one. Now, the third one was balls to the wall. That one scene in the third one where the you know, the big clippers, we all know that with the sheet, the clippers across the hall, that messed me up my entire childhood after I seen that. That is the one film that I that one that one visual stuck forever in my brain. But it was I thought, you know, that was well done. This, this is just I don't know. Y'all gotta watch it and let me know what you think because there is an unexpected re cameo at the end. That's all I'm gonna say. But there's I didn't like how it took a turn here and there. I just it just wasn't the original. It just wasn't. Um, what else did I watch? Oh, I finally watched Insidious, The Red Door. Did you watch that, anybody? Oh. Keith, did you watch The Red Door yet? No, it I'm was not a, really I'm not good. A horror fan, so. It was the typical jump scare stuff you expect from Insidious. You know, the dude with the earrings and the red face. He's mm. back. <laughs> that always upsets me. That demon. One um, I thought, just for shits and giggles, I'm trying to get Scott to watch. He thought it looked stupid, but it's called The Oregon Trail, not Oregon, Oregon. And I thought it was going to be cheesy and stupid, but it's actually really good. Oh, what's that little girl played in? Um, oh, God. they the, What's that song? It was just following her all over the world now. She was in the Supernatural series. Not Supernatural, but um, 1980s, Monsters, Little Kids. Why can't I not think of the name? It was a big hit. Four seasons. Netflix. Oh, oh, my God. Anyway, she was in it. Remember that song, Running Up That Hill? What 
Oh yeah, from Stranger Things. Stranger Things. She was in it. So she she did really would you see her outside of her box that she actually does quite well in something else. That's that was really good. And when I watched Dampire last Dampier, Dampire. It's on Netflix. It's really good spin on vampires. So I love vampires, so I watch vampire anything. But other than that, we just been chilling, getting ready for the holidays. Not Christmas shopping yet. Don't want to go to the store. It's scary out there. Might have to wing it on Amazon again this year. <laughs> Don't know. Mm -hmm. But that's it. What's up with the rest of you? Um, we watched a, um, a TV show on Netflix started that, that called Aviated. What is it? Really, called Obliviated. It's about these special ops forces who's trying to stop a nuclear bomb going off in Las Vegas. But the thing is, they got really drunk and started taking mushrooms and partying the night before. And now they're trying to stop it. And oh my god, that sounds time. great. What is it? Obliterated? Obliterated, yeah. It's got obliterated more than one. They get obliterated. It's got C. Thomas Howell in it everything. as well. Okay. Yeah, they've got C. Thomas Howell in it running around Stark oh, really? So you can see what? his penis. It is how old is this? It's new. It came out it's twenty twenty three. It started C. Thomas last Howell year. still showing full frontal, is he? Okay. Well, he looks old though. That's what I'm saying. Age. I mean, I, after a while, I would stop taking my clothes off in public. Oh, he's still working out. So, but oh, um, yeah. What else have we seen? I'm, I've started watching Mayfair Witches. Almost done with that. Oh, you're on the first season, right? Yeah, because they didn't just tell me yet. There's not a second season yet. I don't think second right? season's coming, and they're doing a crossover with the Interview with the Vampire as well because it's all in the same universe. True. Oh, I saw, didn't even think the they were going to do that. Okay, gonna, I loved it. Over. I don't know, kind of a slow, kind of a slow burn, but I really enjoyed it. You like that? Yeah, I'm liking it. I got three more episodes, and um, I love the book more. So I thought they go a bit more in time to like all the ones. But what right. I was watching so far, but I mean, if it's coming back for a second season, they got room to expand a bit more. So let's hope that happens. Oh, um, wow, I didn't know the that. The Lasher character, I just expect him to be more sexier than what he is. I think like, he's mm, supposed okay. to be like a Papa Legba. I'm not really quite sure what he's supposed to be yet. A demon. Well, in the books, he, but in the books, he's um, I mean, he's he's, a, he's a demon force, isn't he? But he's but he's right. really really sexy. And this one is like he's okay, but he's not sexy. You know, he's a good actor. He's not really sexy, but he's got some kind of appeal. I don't know. He's the yeah. dominant demon. I guess he's sexy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then we watched a Christmas horror film called Violet Night, which was really good. I love that movie. That's like a staple of Christmas from now on because it yeah. is violent. It's fucking yeah. great, though. And then I've been catching up on stuff for the podcast, you know, Tales of the Crypt um, and Christmas Horror Story. Been watching, we watched that. Watched Auntie Mame, of course. Been watching Bits and Bobs. We've been watching, watched Universal Soldier and some in the beginning. I love of Universal Soldier. <laughs> John Paul Van Dam running around naked through that one. <laughs> he was good looking in his day. I'll give him that. So, no, that's a nice ass shot. <laughs> yeah. Ass so, but other than that, that's about it, really. So, you know, just living life and getting ready for Christmas. Got the tree up and ready to go. Oh, so. yeah. You got your tree up. Yeah. And on that note, that brings us to Auntie Mame. 
which is a 1955 novel by American author Patrick Dennis chronicling the madcap adventures of a boy, Patrick, growing up as a ward of his auntie Mame Dennis, the sister of his dead father. The book is often described as having been inspired by De Dennis's real-life eccentric aunt, Marion Tanner, whose life and outlook mirrored those of Mame, but Dennis denied the connection. The novel was a runaway bestseller, setting records on New York Times bestseller list with more than 2 million copies in print during its initial publication. It became the basis of a stage play, a film, a stage musical, and a film musical. In 1958, Dennis wrote a sequel titled Around the World with Auntie Maine. In September 2001, the book was re-released -re in paperback by Broadway Books and in print in a random house. In 2009, the Italian publishers Adelphi re-released the book, which has been out of print for many years in its Italian translation, under the title Zia Mame. The book reached the top spot in Italian bestsellers list and stayed there for many weeks, an unusual performance for a re-release. It became one of Italy's best-selling novels of all times. What we're going to do is cut the synopsis of Auntie Mame the book and be right back. <laughs> This is the synopsis for Auntie Mame, the 1955 novel by Patrick Dennis. Patrick Dennis, orphaned in 1928, with his father Edwin dies unexpectedly, is placed in the care of his aunt Dame Dennis in Manhattan. Mame is flamboyant and exuberant, hosting frequent parties with a variety of guests and free-spirited friends including the frequently drunk actress Vera Charles, a satious page who runs a nudist school, and Lindsay Wolseley, a book publisher. Mayne quickly becomes fond of Patrick and aims to give him a broad view of life as possible. Patrick's inheritance is managed by Dwight Babcock, a trustee of the highly conservative Knickerbocker Bank, who is instructed by Edwin to restrain Mayne's influences. Without Babcock's knowledge, Mayne enrolls Patrick in Paige's school. When this is discovered, Babcock forcibly enrolls Patrick into his alma mater, preventing Mayne from seeing her nephew except during holidays and during the summer. When Mame is bankrupt in 1929, stock market crash, she takes a series of jobs which ends disastrously. During one job at Macy's Sales Girl, she meets Southern oil baron Beauregard Jackson Pickett Burnside. Both are smitten and he invites Mame to his estate. Despite an attempt on her life by Beau's original betrothed, Mame and Beauregard are married, traveling around the world for their honeymoon. Mame continued to receive letters from Patrick and vice versa, indicating Babcock's influencing him into a more conventional personality. After Bo dies while climbing the Matterhorn in 1937, Mame comes home after a prolonged period of mourning to discover the now adult Patrick gifted her with a dictaphone, typewriter, and secretary, Agnes Gooch. He and her friends persuade her to write her autobiography. Patrick and Lindsay arrange for a collaborator ghostwriter for Mame, Brian O'Banion, who rapidly proves to be a fortune hunter. Patrick announces to Mame that he's engaged to Gloria Epson, a girl approved by Babcock from a restricted community in Connecticut called Montebank. Mame is initially angered by the ch change in his character, but relents to please him. She also sabotages O'Banion's attempted wooing by sending Agnes to a party in her place, lying to O'Banion that Agnes is a secret heiress. When Agnes returns, she rather remembers the evening, thinking they saw a movie with a wedding scene. After Mame meets, 
after Mae meets Gloria, who proves to be spoiled and prejudiced. She visits Gloria's parents in Montebank at their house, ups and downs. Sometime later, finally to the boorish and anti-Semitic, she invites them and Gloria to a dinner party at her apartment with Patrick, Babcock, and some of her friends. On the night of the party, Patrick meets Mame's new secretary, Pagin, and the two are attracted to each other. Agnes also lives there, now pregnant due to her night with O'Banion, and presumes to be unmarried. The entire party is choreographed to show up the Epsons. Lindsay surprises the attendees with galleys from Mame's autobiography, reminding Patrick of the forgotten adventures. The book release prompts a telegram from O'Banion demanding half the royalties for his efforts, also revealing that he married Agnes on their night out. When Gloria insults Mame's company, Patrick instead defends them and insults Gloria's own circle, ending their relationship. Mame dedicates her royalties to a home for refugee child Jewish children in Montebank, much to the Epsons' horror. The Epsons leave in a huff. Mame berates Babcock for his attempts to manipulate Patrick's life. He also leaves. By 1946, Patrick and McGean are married and have a son, Michael. Mame and Michael persuades his parents to let Mame take the child of a journey to India. Mame tells Michael of all the wonderful sights that they will see. And that is the synopsis for Anti-Mame by Patrick Dennis. Now back to the show. Back to the License Podcast. We're discussing Anti Mame by Patrick Dennis. So, Leandro, what are your thoughts of Anti Mame? Um, uh, the beginning was like um, took me a while to the book catch me, but when it did, yeah, it was really I like it. It was cool. Um, I'm so used to not to read the all the other books that we have been reading, but the chapters are shorter than this one was a bit of effort. <laughs> the, the chapters are a bit longer. Um, well, I really like it. I like the how it happens that that in her life, um, how like the life of a like um a relative that is really really young comparing to her life that is all style stylish and no ties whatsoever. Now, like it kind of like. His life changed because his dad died, but also her life changed when he entered in her life. And how they click. Um yeah, I really I really like this story. And what about yourself, Davide? What are your thoughts? Uh we're doing the book, so the book was very complicated, I have to say. Very complicated. Um I think from my perspective, it's either an incredible book. Oh, a shitty book, and I still cannot understand what to think about it. There's no middle ground for me. So, no, no, it's I, I really, really mean it. I've had to ponder on it. I just like um, your straightforwardness. It just, oh, I just, I get a kick out of it. I love it. I love you. No, don't, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's. I'm generally still confused, and actually, I'm gonna find out from you guys when, when, when you describe it. But I'm, 
I'm in a situation where I don't know what to think about the book. So obviously we have a point of view, the story of a kid who's living with his auntie. And then you got the auntie being like a sort of guidance for the kid, which is amazing. And obviously she's trying to open the mind of the kid and try to make him see things as they are and going beyond, you know, the labels of society and the restriction, the prohibitionism, you know, and then also kind of like fight against, you know, racism, classism and stuff like that. However, this is a rich, wealthy, white, privileged woman who's got tons of money and she can afford to to be free and to be talking and doing parties and stuff like that and traveling the world. And normal people can't really do that, especially in that period. So do you see my perspective? Uh, I kind of disagree with you because normal people can be that way. Normal people, just because you're poor doesn't mean you have to be an asshole to everyone around you. Absolutely, being I agree. Poor, being poor Absolutely. doesn't mean... And another thing is, I know that... Okay, I know that she's wealthy. But at the same time, if you look at everyone else around her who's wealthy, they're very, very cut off. They're very, very racist. They're very, very... Um, you know, they're, they're not helping anyone. Absolutely. And, okay, and so, you know, so when you look at Auntie Mame, her thing is like, you know, even when she loses everything, mm-hmm. she's she still, goes to work. She, she goes to work. She has the power to not let her get her down. Always look on the bright side of life. Take life and take a bite, you know, take a bite from the apple because this is the only life you got. Because after this life is gone, that's it. We got nothing. Yes. What, whether there's a heaven and hell or what like that, you're not going to know. But if let's say there's nothing there, you wasted a whole life. And even when things get really, really bad, I think what what you know the anti main book is trying to tell you is that even when things get bad and you don't think they can't get any worse, and even if they do get worse, that you gotta stay positive. You gotta move forward. You gotta do things like that. And that you know, and I think you know, and I have to disagree with being the privileged white person and all this other stuff because that's fucking bollocks. Mm. And then people who say that, you know, not, you know, you know, but people who kind of think that way is that you've been programmed to think a certain way that people work hard and are successful, then therefore they're privileged. Now, the thing is, we don't know how Mame got her money. We don't know if she we don't. We know that she was an actress beforehand. Mm. So the 1920s flapper. I mean, so she probably did vaudeville and all that. And so the thing is to sit there, you know, and so, you know, you got to think that just because someone's rich doesn't necessarily mean that they have white privilege. No, 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 no. no. What I I like is like, I think it's not about that she has money, right? We know because you know the story. It's like, I think that she's like an extravagant soul. And if you see all the things, even when she sees that someone is trying to trick her, it's mm-hmm. so clever that she she can go all around you without you realizing and flip the situation, and I think that that's what the the the, the book was trying to show you, like bad situations, yeah, like well, bad, bad situations, kind of, and turning turn it around to work for her. But her her view on life is open a new window, open a new yeah. door, have a new hall hallway that you never tried before. The person yeah. you want to be is three dimensional. Soaking up life up from your toes. You want to be a three-dimensional yeah. character. And if you're not three-dimensional, then well, that's Well, it's clear problem. that she loved all kinds of people. Let's face it. Every, there's people in there were of a different sexual persuasion that was implicated. And it was, and, you know, and then she, you know, even in the book, when we talk about the movie later, she slaps her nephew down for being a snob. 
you know what I mean? And she doesn't want to portray that to him because everybody face that all the people that she surrounds herself with in this book. And think about Dennis Patrick writing this book because he was a bisexual that they call adventurer. So he was struggling with all this stuff in a, in a time when people frowned upon it. Yeah. So a lot of that, I see a lot of Patrick Dennis spilling into the pages because he had quite a, a life. This book was turned down. They're calling it a lost classic, but it was turned down by 19 publishers before somebody finally took this book up and it became, it was one of the biggest hits in the 20th century, really. It sold a thousand copies a day for three years. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, boom, hugely came out. And um, because the author, there, he was what they're saying, a flamboyant, eccentric, and he's bisexual. He gave up writing for a while because, of, you know, I think a lot of stuff that about Auntie Maine was what he was feeling and he was putting it into Annie Maine. Yeah. Seriously. Because if you look at his life, I mean, he struggled a lot, you know. Well, I mean, you he had at, a lot of unwise investments and, and things, and he struggled in this particular time when a lot of people this was an awful period of time for America. But you also but I love how he brings her across the color colorful, flamboyant. I want an Annie Mame. Can you imagine? I would love having Annie Mame in and my this, house. And this came out at a time before, you know, um, you know, before equal rights. Before this is, I mean, not, you know, this takes place in the twenties. Women didn't even have the right to vote. Right to vote yet? No. Um, and um, and you know, you got this woman who's basically, you know, you know. And if you look at most books set in this time in the 20s and 30s and 40s, all these books are about a woman who needs to find a man to make sure that she's a person. Yeah. She's like, you know, I'll have, you know, she falls in love with Beauregard, of course. And but I mean, but she she marries them. And the, the important thing that's important about Auntie Maine that, that satisfies her character is that the banker who's been trying to marry her the whole time that she had money. Wants to marry her when she doesn't have money, and she goes. And she says to him, "I didn't marry you when I was rich. I'm not going to marry you now that I'm poor." Mm -hmm. Which a lot of women was like, "Oh, he's rich. Just marry him because that will take care of all your problems." But she doesn't do right. that. And the reason why she marries Beauregard, um, Burnside Pickett, um, Pickett Burnside, is that you know she's in, she's in love with him. So she's in love with this person. That's why she marries him. And of course, she ends up getting money again and stuff like this. And of course, they just happen to have to go up the Matterhorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convenient. But the thing about Auntie Mame is it's like the simple fact that, you know, if you look at Patrick Dennis himself, I mean, this book came out in the 1940s. Oh, yeah. You know, this he is also, where he also attempted suicide three times because and he, he abandoned also, his writing. But America was segregated. Yeah. The Jews didn't mix with the Christians. The Christians didn't mix with any, you know, with the you know, Anagostics. The the Italians didn't mix with the Spanish, and the Spanish didn't mix with anybody. You know what I mean? No, we had our own little neighborhoods in the neighborhood. A, yeah, you stayed in your neighborhood. You stayed in your Italian-American neighborhood. You stayed in your um, Puerto Rican neighborhood. You stayed yeah. in your white neighborhood. And this is what the world that we were living in at this time. And that even though, you know, so you have to kind of like look at the American the way this is. So you got this Andy Mame who's like going, you know, Inviting everyone of color and um, yeah. Asian and sexualities into her home. Um, Agnes Gooch, who's her secretary, becomes pregnant. Oh, yeah. And at that time, you turn that person away. You did not invite that person into your home. 
whatever you do, that, that person's that's a single pregnant woman. She is a no go area, and you push them away. You lock. It was kind of like that up until about the eighties, really latter seventies. Well, to be honest, it's the nineties where um, basically teenage pregnancy was a was a, was a thing. Now, now yeah. it's, it's acceptable. Oh, they had packs. I swear to God, they had packs back in the day. Well, yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure that MTV's teen moms probably helped a lot. But that didn't help at all. MTV, <laughs> that's a joke. But, but at that time, I mean, single mothers and single parents and all that situation was you know not a thing and i remember like when my parents got divorced from 72 we were outcast no one could uh, children couldn't play with us because our parents were out because we were from divorced parents in 72 now of course by 1980 you know me being became part of majority by that time because the, the world changed very quickly and a lot of people were getting divorced at that time so if you look at you know the time you have to kind of look at anti main from the time that it is written and the and the period that it takes place in, and then you understand that you know if this book is selling a thousand copies per week for three years in America, still I mean, two million in like record. Just, what, what it means is that almost every single household had a copy of this. Rich, poor, ethnic doesn't matter. People were reading this, and if they're get if they're coming if they're coming out of reading this book, it's like live life. Of life is a banquet, most poor sons of bitches are starving to death, or they're you know you gotta live, live, live your life. You gotta live, you know. And if you don't live, and you live your if you live your life with blinkers on, and you sit there and put cages on your brain, and you blame everyone for everything that's wrong with you, then basically you're gonna have a piss poor life, and you kind of deserve what yeah. you kind of get. And that's what I kind of like about Auntie Mame, the book itself. Now, the thing is, the book is very episodic. You know, it's kind of hard to... You know, I was you, trying to figure out if this was a serial for a second or two. I, I realized it wasn't. But it could have been. Well, he mentioned Reader's Digest a lot. Almost, and I, I know it wasn't published in Reader's but Digest. But it was a big deal back but, then, though. But it, did, but it did feel like each chapter was a chapter in a, in a Reader's Digest magazine i remember somewhere. my mother used to have a subscription to readers digest in fact everything big, every, big little magazine i think everyone had a readers I, digest i don't know anyone when i was growing up who didn't have a readers digest subscription no no and i've come to think of it i don't recall nobody i don't see it anymore but they, they used to be on everybody's coffee table i know that yeah and we used to get in the post and it's like you know it has like word of the day and then oh that's it. right that's right yeah the most influential yeah. person I met I like the simple little things like that. Little books and spots. So, but so I mean that's what I take away from Auntie Mame. I mean, um, I bought the book when it was republished, and I got I read both around the world, and I also got a the biography of Patrick Dennis as well that I read. Um, well, he had quite a life. He had he that man just seemed like he suffered so much, though. I mean, he tried to commit suicide three times. He was tormented by his sexual tendencies because he was also a, a father and, you know, a husband. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff, all this turmoil, I just noticed it in the pages. I mean, if you read a lot about Patrick Dennis, which you obviously have, you see, you see it kind of manifest in mm -hmm. his writing. But he was kind of an interesting person, really is. I mean, um, I guess Auntie Mame I got turned on to by my grandmother. And uh, my grandmother, who was Well, it's funny. Didn't y'all think any of it was comical? Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, she gave it to me when she, um, my grandmother 
was a poor farmer woman. Um, she got she got married at the age of fifteen. She never had any money, and she I mean she was crippled with arthritis, but she still got up every day. She she miscarried thirteen children, you know, and she she had hard quite a hard life situation. But she, I remember going there, and she, she a Manti Mame the movie was on, and she she goes, you have to watch this because she goes, this is how you need to leave your life. She goes, this is how I lead my life. And then she and then she would then she would read me the book. And so I guess that's the reason why I kind of look at it. That simple fact that a simple farm woman who could have had life could, you know, could had life beat her down, but she never did. She was always uplifting and she always had a good word to say for it. And the thing is, she had only like if she had like two dollars, she'd bring people who were homeless into her home and feed them. Well, that was, was a different. That was a different world. That generation, when we remember fondly, they always had it hard. They didn't cry and piss and moan when they didn't have yeah. anything. They went out and worked for it and didn't sit in their mother's basement. That that's the difference. But that's it. That's the total difference between that generation and this one, the silent generation. But, they they were better. Yeah, and, you know, and, and she's you know my my grandmother kind of led led by that from you know because she read the book, which is kind of like interesting in itself. And then then my mom felt the same way because my mom was the mother for all the misfit children in our neighborhood. She'd bring them in and she'd feed them and take care of them. And I mean, I go on Facebook and everyone tells me how much they miss my mom. Situation. I mean, they had a stronger relationship with her than I did. That's another story. There's always the one mom that uh, my mom would do that too. I mean, yeah. you know. All the bikes were out front, that yeah. kind of thing, you know. You know, and my grandmother taught my mom, and I mean, we were poor, and I mean, you know, and, I, and I'm like that now. If I mean, if I don't, you know, I don't have a lot, but if whatever I have, I'll give it to someone if they need it, or I'll help anyone I need to. And I have to sit there and say that I think it's because of the anti main book that's kind of pushed those thoughts forward for me. And even when I look at people today and they're moaning and groaning about how their lives and how hard it is, and I think to myself, it's like, well, just work fucking harder then. You're, 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 you know, you're in charge. You're in charge of your life. If your life's not going where it's going, then you got to change it. You got to do something about it. Yeah. And you know, and you know, and even though, okay, you know, and you know, even though Auntie Mame's got money, and it makes life money makes life easier. But at the end of the day, even if you're poor, doesn't necessarily, you know, you can still make your life as much as livable and happy as you want to make it. Well, the yeah. author was rich and poor. He had a lot of bad investments. He was a millionaire, and then he lost it all on bad investments. So, yeah. I mean, he's run the gamut here. You know, I mean, a lot of, like I said, a lot of his life history seems to flush into this book. Yeah. It's so, just Auntie Maine, that's all. Yeah. The bathtub so, gin. Was she making homemade gin? Well, it's prohibition, so basically. Yeah, I know. I, I was wondering, is she making the homemade gin? I couldn't figure it out in the book. Or well, I mean, she kept talking have, about her bathtub gin, and I'm going to make it gin. They never really say. I'm assuming well, you, have to, you have to go to get you have to go to gangsters for your the bathtub gin. Yeah, Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, that must like have that. been rot gut. Woo, regular gin's rot gut. I can't imagine that must have been like turpentine. Like <laughs> oh the paint off. It'd be healthy for you. Well, she probably never had mildew in her bathtub because of it. <laughs> probably not. Anyway, um, I guess let's rate Manti Mame. Let's start with you, Leandro. How how many stars would you give Manti Mame? Um, three and a half. Three. Yeah. 
And yourself, Davide? I can't give it a three, but that's probably I might need to read it again just to see from a different perspective, I guess. Mm. And Vicky? I give it a four. It was pretty good. Um, some of it was got kind of lengthy, but other than that, it was pretty good though. It's a good read. Yeah. <laughs> I for the book itself, I'm probably gonna give it a four. For the message, I'll give it a five. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It does yeah. have a good message. It really does. I like the message and I like I like her outlook and a lot of stuff that's in that book. My grandmother taught me lessons and how to live my life and how to look at life. And I and I kept that and a lot of that stuff's in this book. So well, probably- tomorrow is never guaranteed, is it? <laughs> well, I like I like that I it seems like for example, um his dad has a was really strict, right? And Auntie Mame was more like, okay, let's see what happened when it happens and go around, you know, and, and no, like really like flexible. And then you have this boy in the middle that has been left by, well, the dad, the, the, his dad died. So now he's like kind of, okay, which model I follow now? And I think that is good that seeing how Auntie Mame lives helped him to, to see a good way of seeing life, which is like, let let's figure it out when it, when it happened. Not being worried right now on what was going on now that, um, in a in a part of the book she said like he was feeling like he was like a block of clay that he was going to shape. So that that was a really cool thing. It does have a nice message though. Mm-hmm. Well, this brings us to the film Anti-Mame, which is a 1958 American technorama technicolor comedy film based on the 1955 novel of the same name by Edward Everett Tenor III under the pseudonym of Patrick Dennis. And its 1956 theatrical adaption by Jerome Lawrence and Robert Edwin Lee. The film stars Rosalind Russell and was directed by Morton DaCosta, which will be his first film. It's not to be confused with the musical version of the same story that appeared on Broadway in 1966, which starred Angela Lansbury as Mame and B. Arthur as Nora Charles. And it was later made into a 1970 film version called Mame, starring Lucille Ball as the title character. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer of Anti-Mame and be right back. <laughs> Edna, I called you yesterday. Where are you? Hello, darling. I'll be with you in just a minute. Vladimir. I'm your Auntie May. Yes, it's the wacky and warm, wild and wonderful Auntie May, whose story shattered all bestseller records and then ran riot on stages all over the land. Auntie Mame, the name that has become a household word. And brother, what a household. No, 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 no! You do have a bust! Oh. I want to skittle out and pay off that nice taxi man so he can get along home to his family. You mean say you left the taxi meter running in the middle of the Depression? Well, ma'am, you see, 
I'm in oil. It just keeps on gushing. There ain't nothing I can do about it. Live! That's the message! Live! Yes, life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. Come on now, child, live! 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 Let's go and live! Tomorrow morning, I, me, personally, am taking this boy off to boarding school. I am placing him in St. Boniface Academy, where he will stay. You will only get your depraved hands on him Christmas and summer, and I wish to heaven I could prevent that! And he means, if you'll only give me another chance, I'll prove to you... I wouldn't give you the time of day after the dirty double-cross you pulled on me. But you can't take him from me. He's, he's all I have. Mame, I'm sorry. I just don't think I can bear it. I just don't. I've never seen you cry before. <laughs> Mame. Is anything wrong, Missy Gooch? I did just what she told me. I lived. I've got to find out what to do now. too. You wouldn't want to miss it for anything. Back to the Jaws podcast, we're discussing the film Anti Mame. So, Davide, what are your thoughts of the film Anti Mame? Um, I have to say because I think it was quite interesting. I watched it twice, obviously. I rewatched it recently. Um, it felt like what it felt like watching like a theater show. So there were a lot of things that made me think like it wasn't like a normal movie. That makes sense. There were yeah. scenes like when the change of the scenes. It was like everything was going definitely down, like just on the face, or maybe there were scenes where she was kind of talking to herself, but then looking at the cameras or looking. I like how the they did that. It, it felt like almost being like in theater. I, I mean, why didn't they make her sing or something? <laughs> that was the uh, only thing that that was actually missing. So that's one side of uh, of the story of the movie that made it interesting. It was quite long, to be honest, and I, I like long movies because at least you get enough time to get to know the person. Um, it was like two hours and five minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I think. Is it like more than yeah, two hours? Yeah, it's longer. I mean, it felt is like. It... What I think the only thing that feels weird about because the time period that the film's in, you know, I mean, uh, it came out mm. in nineteen eighty. Yeah. They were Apparently, usually like, shorter films back then. Well, you, it was one hundred forty-three minutes. That's so two hours and twenty-three minutes. Normally, okay. I, normally, what you would get in it is like some kind of weird intermission. <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't any. <laughs> but there wasn't dancing any hot dogs or anything. Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at like West Side Story, or if you look at how the West was won, or other films that are coming out this time, even Ben Hur at that time, the Carlson Heston, they all had Second an intermission. Yeah, this doesn't have an intermission. This is straight through. So, well. yeah. So, and then, and there was actually 
I mean, besides the fact that it was long, but then the character is something that, at least from my perspective, took a little while to get used to it. So at the beginning was very much on your face, if that makes sense. Right. So very eccentric, etc. But then I understood because there was also a caring side from on, on her. Like there was a, you know, that scene when she's like covering the kid, for example. Um, and as he falls asleep on the band and she covers him and you can see that she cares when she cries because she's going to lose him, for example. Um, you see also that side of her. I still trying to figure out the eccentric side on what, I mean, I understand that she's educated. She's like a sort of progressive philanthropist and very eccentric and then surrounded by artists and different type of people, etc. So that's, I mean, she's interested in all the faces of life, let's just say. But I'm still trying to understand this kind of like faces of culture that she has, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm wondering whether like the she Chinese would... stuff. She seems to yeah, switch yeah, her Japanese apartment. Speaking. Doesn't she switch her apartment from Chinese to Art Deco to whatever? Yeah, yeah, she changes what? it all the time. It's a technical disorder. <laughs> yeah, what I understood is like for me, it's like every time she was having going on holiday, like to do a trip, she was bringing back all the the furniture yes, yes, yes. the style and all that yeah statues like kind of bringing bringing that culture to your house to to live it in your in your own day by day um sorry carry on that. that would be so cool i wish i had that kind of money i think she's one of these kind of people though that kind of like um you know, it's a bit like, you know, when she's going to show Patrick his room and she, and, you know, I think she, she gravitates towards something mm-hmm. and then just gravitate and then just gravitates to something else without, I don't think she finishes a lot of projects. I think she starts stuff, yeah. doesn't finish anything. So I like, don't know, but I think like, Rosalind, like, this is, like this is my sculpture room. Like this is my sculpture room, you know, and she talks about like, you know, the bus, which is the head, you know. Um, but then, then she goes, oh, she goes, oh, Maybe you like, oh, this is actually, I'm, I'm doing weaving, I guess, now. <laughs> you forgot that she doesn't even do that anymore. So she seems to always, and the same thing like with her decor, decor is always changing because I think she does have an attention deficit disorder. I don't, you know, but I think. Yes. In the way that she lives her life, though, I think that maybe it's best to have an attention deficit disorder because if something gets boring, you can just change it to keep going. So. Mm. Maybe that's the reason why she doesn't really let things get her down because she's always moving and changing. Well, she's so bubbly and happy and just outgoing. And Rosalind Russell is by far the best choice they could have ever picked for Auntie Mae. I just love Rosalind Russell. And the I more saw, I read yeah. about Rosalind Russell, the more I admire and love her. She was just a great person. Well, you know who plays her best friend, Nora Charles, don't you? That's Coral Brown, Vincent Price's wife. Is that really Vincent oh. Price's wife? I didn't know that. How cool! I didn't know she was married to him. And um, and Gooch, I love the Gooch character as well. The Gooch character, oh my god! Just so that that was just so funny how they handled that because what a sensitive topic like unwed mother pregnancy, and she comes goes to this party, and the next minute, the next scene, she's pregnant. That's yeah. how I thought it was funny. So it's like, oh Jesus, they must not have. She, she goes, well, I thought I was at a wedding. And <laughs> yes. she goes, but she realized if they were just hammered and she got married to that. Who was that guy? He was an artist, wasn't he? She he was, was, he was the editor, editor of her book. He's supposed to be editing. Oh, that's was- right. That's right. That's right. And he was driving her crazy. But the, the best the best thing is, is like, <laughs> um, um, Mame goes to Gooch. What happened to you? 
I did what you said. I lived. I lived. Yeah, she comes home pregnant and hungover. <laughs> uh, but I mean, um, the funny thing about this is that, I mean, Morton DeCosta directed this on Broadway, and of course he directed he directed this, and he does, and the way he's directed it has a very, as Davide says, a very stagey style. Yeah. Now we're celebrating Morton DeCosta this month anyway, because our two for one is going to include the. You don't need made two other films after this. One is The Music Man, which we're covering, which has the same kind mm-hmm. of thing where, you know, it freezes on the person and they look at each other and then everything darkens behind them and it comes back onto the next scene. And then, of course, Island of Love, which we'll be covering as well. And then after that, that was the end of his filming career. But he was a Broadway actor. He was a Broadway director. He directed that. He also directed the um, Patrick Dennis's um, musical called Little Me as well, which is also based on this. But the funny thing about this is that there's a musical version of this that starred Angela right. Lansbury and um and B. Arthur from Golden Girls as yep. Nora Charles. And the thing is, is that I didn't see the original the, the original musical when it came out, but Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur and Robert Preston came and I did love Robert Preston. Did did the musical again and they did it on a like a small tour in the 80s. And I got to see that in Dallas. I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been, and, I would just love Robert Preston. I always have. And when I was reading the liner notes, because I looked into the playbill the other day from it, and reading the liner notes is that Angela Lansbury had 70, no, sorry. She had 42 costume changes in this show. I believe it. So when she goes off one the one side and when she comes back on, because the whole show she's in every single scene. When she goes off one right. scene, comes in, she's in another outfit. And Rosalind Russell did the same thing. So I noticed that in the movie they did the same thing that every scene that Rosalind Russell's dressed differently all the way through. Right. And these were the, the costumes are so that I mean just the clothing is beautiful. The sets are beautiful in this. And mm-hmm. I'm, my favorite part of it is when the snotty fiance's family comes over and everything is not top drawer. <laughs> Everything's mm-hmm. top drawer. It's gotta be top drawer. What mm-hmm. a bunch of snobs. I mean, I guess, gosh, I mean, talk about taking anti-Semitism on early on in the 50s, I guess. Well, I mean, you know, there are certain things in the play that they had to change a bit for the movie anyway. Right. The play is a lot more. I was more really surprised about that. And, and you know, there is interracial relationships in the movie and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, in the in the play that they can't show in the movie. Right, course, right. Thingy, but there's um, but the whole thing about gated communities, which I always fucking hated. Restricted. I, I we call them gated here. I guess they're restricted. But if you got the money, you can live in them. You could be black. You could be Jewish. You could be Indonesian. <laughs> if you've got the money, you can live there. So I mean, I don't put it past people. Now, see, that seems like Hamptonish where they were to me, and that is definitely stuck up because when I went to college, my friends were much richer. We aren't rich. I just happen to have rich friends. But we'd go and stay at their houses on the weekends, the kind that you could land a plane in the living room. And there was a lot of that going on, with especially that type of grand dresser drawl about that. That's just the way they are. And I mean, it's just heinous. Well, the whole thing about like um, when she sits there and says that basically is like, you know, they're going to buy Patrick and Glory the house. Next yeah. to the, because because it's gated up to their 
up to their property. Front, right, for their front yard or their property. And we want to make sure that the right people move in. <laughs> I know. God, yeah. I, you know what? That just makes me want to move right next door to people that hate me. You know? Well, I mean, they're gated communities. There's still gated communities now. I mean... Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, that was... I mean the places that we're, I mean, the places that, that we're looking at in Frisco in Frisco when we moved there are gated communities. Which Most of the communities in Frisco are gated. You're going to the top drawer part of Dallas. <laughs> the top drawer part of Dallas. I but might not even drive my Kia Rio into your neighborhood. They might not talk to you. <laughs> well, I, I but I, I know for a fact that before we can move into these, I gotta have I I had my and my sister have to be interviewed. For um for these places to live in these places, well they like to know who's going. They don't want scumbag drug dealers. But the thing is, I'm I'm on those things. Like if you have the money, what does it matter? You got the money, you can live anywhere. They don't care. Money walks. That's yeah. the way it is. This is North Dallas. They want your money. Yeah, but I'm not saying like gated communities are kind of a weird thing for me anyway. Because kind of like, well, um, I mean, with with everything going on, you kind of want a gated. We don't have a gated community. Sometimes I wish it was because it's a little more secure, especially with all the border jumping we got going on. You know? Yeah, but I, I would say the only difference between a gated community than a regular community is a gated community probably has a lot more hidden domestic <laughs> domestic murders going on. It. There's more, there's I, a lot well, more they, they have their murders. Share, there's other murders going on problems. in other communities, but gated communities always seems to be like missing wives and children. <laughs> No, there's not too much of that going on these days. Usually these days it's people that they come in and wait to see you pull into your 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 garage because they because they know that cops won't get you that much anymore because you know what's going on with the defund the police thing. They'll follow you to your driveway as soon as you open that garage. So the smart thing to do now if you know someone's following you is to back in and you can take off a lot quicker if they cost you at your garage. But because that's the neighborhoods they like. And you, can run, and you can run and you can run in, you can you can run them over if you need to. That's why you gotta have a gun. Open carry, my friend. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting my guns out of storage and we'll be there, so I'll be okay. But um but yeah, and I mean I, I quite I mean what I like about anti mame is it's like there's a lot of it is very funny all the way through it. You know I it thought is, it was funny as hell. Yeah. I loved it. I thought it was <laughs> romp, romp kind of it was just a romping escapade. Hi, I'm your auntie name. And it did have like all of these one liners that came out of it. And all of, you know, we always love our second secondary characters. There was a just a cornucopia of funny characters in this. How do you not laugh at all these people? It's like, you know, all these all these it seems like all of these misfits that have money just congeal into this one area. And, they, you know, their lives all intersect. And it's just I loved it. I mean, I watched it twice. I didn't have to. But I just loved it. I could not stop watching it. I mean, when she sends Patrick to the um, school, yeah, and Babcock takes him out of the school, and he's and she goes, "What's happening?" He goes, <laughs> they, "They were playing the they feast." Make it, aren't they? It's like it's like the the the, the girls are the um, the mama fishes, and they're laying their eggs, and we have to we have to <laughs> <laughs> terminate their eggs. <laughs> you don't see this, but you get this a magic. Can you imagine walking into that? <laughs> <laughs> I All forgot these, about that. You know, this is. But the thing is, is you know, up until that point, I mean, um, I mean, it's kind of sad that you know Babcock, you know, has to take. He never Patrick, comes around. 
Well, you have to take Patrick away because he takes Patrick away. So she's only allowed to see him during school holidays and summer vacation now. I know, but I don't understand why. What was his what was his beef with her? Is because he didn't because because he, he didn't want he wanted he wanted Patrick to be of the right. Oh, he wanted him to be hanging out with all the top drawer kind of folks and be top a top drawer. You know, the thing is, is like, be like his dad. Yeah, basically, it's like you know, bigoted. He wanted to be bigoted, very conservative, very um. You know, basically, it's like you live in your little, you know, you live in your rich little bubble. Oh, my God. When that girl is telling a story about the ping pong ball. What the hell with the ping pong yeah. ball? Yeah, they were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was really hysterical when it happened, you know. Mario Pierce. <laughs> no, I, I like when, when when she went to visit the, the family and they were all, the, the house thing was called Upside Down. And then she made the house have all these sofas going up and down. All the sofas with the lovers. That was really cool. Oh my god, that was brilliant. Because she she got all the things that they were from then that they were they were really proud of and turned it around to make them feel embarrassed. Like for example, he he said that he prepared a daiquiri and he put honey on the daiquiri. And then when they were at her house, she said, oh, this tastes horrible. You know, I was in a party and there was a man preparing the kids with, with honey and it was disgusting. And the man was looking like, oops. <laughs> then she sent him that, what was it, that Shiva to his college. She sent him a Shiva from India. <laughs> but I also think this might be a thing to do with the difference between old money and new money. Yeah. Because, oh, absolutely! I know where you're going with this. Yeah, because yeah, I, mean, I mean, the thing is, if you look at new money, it's all it's all very pretentious. If old, if you look at old money, old money is a lot different. Okay, they are all blue blooded kind of stuff. Well, they're they're eccentric, but at the same time, they're very open about yeah. things. And they're not conservative. There's like, but if you're new money, then there's a, there's a persona that you feel like you need to take on situation, and and I guess it's a bit like if you MTV Cribs. For instance, if you ever yeah. watch that, and if you look at like people who are really, really poor and also got a lot of money, and you look at inside their house, and there's always a bit of tackiness to it all situation. Then, yeah. if there's, you know, then they, then you always have money. But I think is if you always have money, you probably know a better way of like, you know, if you always had it, you never had to worry about it. So therefore, you when you have because it's always there, you probably know how to spend it properly. But when you're new yeah. money, it's all about the precocious. There's a precociousness to it, you know. Well, and, and I and I found it like you know that uh, when people say, "Oh yeah, uh, like rich people," are, I don't know, let's say bad people, which is silly. But and then you then you realize that like as you say that like in people who is like now rich, right, and they need to have I don't know a big chain of gold because now they need kind of they need to show blah blah blah. And I think that to me, I see it the other way around. I feel like sorry for people like that because I think it's Someone who is rich doesn't see that as something that have to be pretentious of because it's like normal, right? And probably you will see on a really, really, really rich people wearing like a small chain in the in the neck or nothing because for them is like something normal where the other one needs to stand and show everyone, oh yeah, now I have their money. Yeah. Um, look at me, look at me. I've seen that, like for example, Auntie Mem, she, she is elegant. Which is different. Even when she doesn't have any money, she's dressed in a nice way. And then I like it that, for example, when she was going out 
and she have the the same hat and she grab a piece of uh, the Christmas tree and put it in um, on the hat and it was totally looking look looking like a different hat. So that yeah. things that yeah. that money can give you is that the personality that you have. Yeah. I think it's kind of funny because like when you watch some of those programs like Selling Sunset or something like Netflix. And it's like they'll show these houses and like and look, it has this garage for like 18 houses. But if you look at someone who's always had money, they only they only have one car. They don't need 18 cars. <laughs> they have the one. So it's kind of like so like if you have a garage for like 18 cars, that's all you can show off, isn't it? Look at all my cars. Look at what my money has bought me situation. Where... Well, then we get into Forrest Tucker, who she marries him. The, the cow is he a cowboy or what does he do? I can't remember. He's a gentleman in oil. That's right. He does the oil and oil. Everybody always needs yeah. oil in the twenties. He cracked me up because I just I did not well I knew because I read the book, but I mean I, I was kind of I saw them doing the Matterhorn and I saw him doing the photographs like when they were on the Eiffel Tower and I've been up there. I would never do that. But I mean, anybody with an ounce of freaking common sense knows that this guy is going to be off <laughs> the way he's taking pictures or everything. And he gets up with the Matterhorn. It's like, oh, man, no. <laughs> you know, it's like, OK, here we go. So she got more money after that. But I but think even, she really loved him. That was the sad part. But even her even her friend like Nora Charles goes, looks at her after like, <laughs> and the goes, shouldn't you be in, mo shouldn't you be in purple by now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was a hoot. Now that I know that she's married to Vincent Price, I love her even more. I did not know that. I How love Paul Brown. She's also oh in Theater God, of Blood as well. Huh? She's in Theater of Blood with Vincent Price as I well. I don't recall. Me. I'm going to have to watch that now because it's going to bug me. She's I didn't the, uh, even put that together. Yeah, that's his wife situation. Well, she's so when, perfect for him. She so when she, when she dies, that's what that's what um that's when Vincent Price gave up because he couldn't live without her, sort of thing. So he was really you think? Oh yeah, same thing with Peter Cushion. That's that's kind of they kind of went downhill after the wife died, sort of thing. Because they love their wife so much. But um I still keep thinking of Peter Cushing in that movie, The Uncanny. I don't know why. I cannot shake that movie. I don't know why. <laughs> can't shake it. <laughs> so, um, but um I mean I th I think Auntie Mame has, you know, it's 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 very episodic and I think it's very clever how they're able to take these do it like acts in a play. Yeah, but they're able to actually blend it together so it feels like a full movie because it's it's very faithful to the book. Extremely very. Yes, and because this the book is probably is the episodic. first movie that I can honestly say really did. I mean, there wasn't too much they strayed from that I can recall. Uh, if anything, they pro they toned down a little bit. There's some raciness in the book that they toned down for the a film little bit, a little you bit. Can be a bit more racy in the books at that time than you can with the film. But and even in, I mean, even in the Broadway play situation, you can be a bit more racy on stage than you can with the movies. Right, right. But saying that, it doesn't take anything away from it. You don't feel like you're missing anything. I love this movie. I, I loved it. I just thought it was one of the most fun things I've ever seen. I've never seen this. I've always loved Rosalind Russell, but I mean, I'm just such an enormous fan of her now. It's not even funny. I just adore that woman. I wish she was still alive. I, I will watch anything with Roz and Russell in, um, whether it's The Women, which we covered. I mean, look at that. I mean, another outstanding performance. I mean, they don't make them like that anymore. Mm -hmm. I know we've got actors. The actors today could not touch any of those actors of yesteryear. I don't care who they are. And 
his girl Friday, but Cary Grant, she's excellent in yeah. that. If you look at um, Gypsy, she can't yeah. sing, but she freaking carries that film with her and Natalie Wood. It's like situation, picnic. Uh, or I, mean, I even like her with Haley Mills and The Trouble with Angels, where she plays the Mother Superior. Uh, oh, that's right. That was her, wasn't it? Yeah. And oh, Margaret. No Okay. All those. And I Gypsy love that Rose. old stuff, though. We've got and Gypsy left. Rose Lee as well, which is quite interesting. She plays Gypsy Rose Lee's mom two years before that, and does the Trouble with Angels, and has the original Gypsy Rose Lee in it, the original stripper. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding, that's right. So, um, but yeah, so I mean, I don't think you get a movie that's so perfectly cast like this. Is like every role, and they're all from the stage production as well. Every single one of these actors are from the stage production. You know what? I know it's not a, a Hitchcock movie, but it kind of reminded me of a Hitchcock movie in certain ways. You know what I'm saying without saying it? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not that it was scary like that, but just kind of reminded me. Yeah. How secular it was like a Hitchcock movie, kind of. I don't know. And for a stage production, sometimes when a stage production gets moved to a, a film production and you got Martin DaCosta, which I admire, right. I admire stuff a lot, but normally what you get, sometimes if you see a play production move to stage and whether that's um, Marvin's room or the human heart or angels in America or anything that they, that they transported to film it normally has, this does have a stagey character, but it has that kind of a stagnant view to it. It kind of feels a bit, like it's having difficulty expanding beyond that where this it just tends to have that flow without it feeling like you're being trapped in a stage production being up with a camera in it so i get you know i give them I give them credit for that because there are a lot of stage productions that have been filmed that you can tell i would like how they did their stage production i think they stuck to it as a stage production almost the movie i would i would like to see this if i if it ever comes around i'm definitely gonna go watch it because i want to see how they do that final scene in the living room with the couches and with the, yeah. the you know the other the in-laws because that was just too funny and i mean and i love at the end how her nephew thanks her it's like thank you for showing me i almost married into all this family of assholes you know yes. because it wouldn't have been like him because honestly she wasn't stuck up or snobbish like new money probably where old money would have been because old money doesn't really even appreciate new money but they'll suck up to it because it's money you know but they still they still don't what... quite make the cut though you know yeah. but i think, I think what, what, what really pisses her off is like he realized straight away that they were they, they have everything planned and they want to plan her life when she never planned yeah, yeah. life of anyone. She was living her life and then whoever appeared was falling in, in what he was doing, but not forcing anyone to do something. Well, they were going to make him do his life according to what they wanted to, and that wouldn't have worked for him. He wouldn't have been happy being raised such a free spirit. But see, I think the reason why they were able to do that with him is because he there there's a line in the film that I noticed I'd never noticed before where Babcock was going to see him every weekend. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is that if you look like Auntie Mame gets him, let's say seven weeks out of the year. So that means that the other weeks of the year are being spent with Babcock in that lot. So that's probably the reason why he was kind of clouded over that, you know, being clouded. And it's only when, um, you know, which I think what shows quite clever because Auntie Mame, instead of like having to go at him and just keep on going at him and just fighting, what she decided to do is like invite them over, 
bring over the people that helped raise him because that's what that's what she yeah. said. These people help raise you. It wasn't yeah, just there was family. These people are your family. They help raise you, and then and then see how they react to them, and then I think that's what kind of turns the key to everything as well. Yeah. But I also like at the end the way the end the end has an uplifting thing where you know now she's got well her pseudo grandchild or her pseudo great nephew and she's taking oh him. yeah <laughs> he, yeah he's a good team. Yeah, didn't yeah, take yeah. her long to latch onto him right and then and you know she's and she's doing it and she's teaching him the same lessons you know I like the, some of the lessons she said it's like here's a notebook here's a piece of paper yeah you know, write yeah. down right words, and we'll discuss what these words mean yeah that's you what know? she did to him yeah, yeah. God, I would never give Asher a piece of tablet. Just like God, I wouldn't. I mean, every word that comes, to the words, it would take yeah. me forever just to explain every word that comes out of my mouth all day long when I'm around my grids. But I also like it that she does have like a twisted side as well because what she, I mean, it does show with her what she does to her great nephew, and you know. She stands aside and she goes, "Oh, you know, but you know, he has to go to school. You know, he's better to stay with us for the summer." And then the boy goes. You know what's the matter with you? Life is a banquet. You gotta live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Life is a banquet. And you know then they, they, uh, Patrick and his wife look at each other and then look at her and like, okay, fine, you can take him, but he's gotta be back for Labor Day. You know. What is she? He goes. Life is a banquet, and people are starving. Isn't that what he said? Well, Life is a banquet. Most part, well, in the play is um, in the play version is Life is a banquet. Most poor sons of bitches are starving to death. Yeah. That's why you got to live, live, live situation. So, but of course, they kind of t- they take t- that again. Off. Though the movie's got a great message too. I mean, yeah. it just it just does. It's a great movie. I totally love it. I mean, it was a definite what awesome pick. And I and I take. I mean, to be honest, I pick this. I take this movie out once a year and I watch it. Oh, we will now. Sort of up there, like with the end on the apocalypse. Now we watched that the other day. Got to watch that every December now. <laughs> And in the apocalypse. And <laughs> on the apocalypse. We still love it. Well, I guess we should rate Auntie Mame. Starting with you, Davide. How many stars do you give Auntie Mame? Um, let's give it to four stars out of five. I quite liked it. Um, I liked her character because she kept reinventing herself. You know, she was like helping and caring for the um, the nephew, and then she obviously she worked through the finance difficulties as well. So she kept going ahead. Um, obviously, the movie was very similar to the book. Um, there were a couple of things different, but most of it was very, very similar. And I think that also the way she was written was kind of a way to be sarcastic towards all the prohibitionism and all the racism and classism and stuff. So it kind of was a slap, like a sort of slap in their faces, if that makes sense. And then she somehow reminded me a bit of, uh, do you know Edna from The Incredibles and Disney? Yeah. It kind mm-hmm. of reminded me of her a little bit. Uh, <laughs> a little bit less serious, though. And then with, you know, like a little bit nicer. Um but I quite liked it to be honest. And then also you had a lesson of the importance of family, kind of like the family that you choose rather than the family that you get in life, because obviously family is something that you choose. Um but yeah, I really liked it. I quite liked it. What about yourself, Leandro? Um, for um there was one 
I, I, I looked at even the way she was walking, it was like, like, extravagant. I don't know how to explain, but with all the arms all over the place, you know, like, like free. Um, Bracelets. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think it's a, a four is a, it's a good rating. What about yourself, Vicky? I'm giving it a five because I effing loved it. And I love Rosalind Russell. So I thought it was heart heartfelt. And I, I just loved how they just showed that, you know, you can have money and not be a snob and that you can be a good person. And I, I just like the message that it had. I just love how she raised her nephew. And she had a great family with all kinds of weirdos in it, as it should be. That's just the way you should do it. But I loved it. Yeah, definite five. I'm going to give a definite five. I mean, it's Campus Christmas, this movie, and I, that's what I quite love about it. I love, and I love Rosalind Russell. And I yes, love. I know. And, you know. All we needed was Ethel Merman in there, and it would have been perfect. <laughs> perfect, perfect gay movie. Um, it's quite funny, but um, there is. there. Pat, Patrick Dennis or um, Tur Tanner, was the name of the real guy. He did right. go on record and sit there and say that even though it wasn't based on his aunt, he went on record saying that he did base yeah. it on one of his his best friends who was a drag queen. Really? Oh. I thought that he thought it was an aunt. And then I read the thing about the drag queen and it's like, oh, wow. No wonder he's got him so cool and flamboyant and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. Because I can yeah, actually see saying, drag queen. Saying darling thing. all the time make me yeah. feel a bit... Uh... The come on, stop saying darling. <laughs> so, yeah. so we end up seeing the darling. movie again and think of Auntie Mame as a dry queen. Yeah. Puts <laughs> yeah, yeah. a kind of new spin but on it. That would just make it even funnier and cool still. I'd still love it. I could give a shit. I just love it. <laughs> yeah. It kind of gives that, that, that nice little twist. In but if it, can you imagine just putting Robert Preston in there as Auntie Mame and he could pull it off? Robert <laughs> Preston can pull anything off. Yeah. <laughs> But um, overall, I mean, I mean, I love the message that it gives. I like the idea that you know, no matter how hard it gets, you know, you gotta live. You gotta live your life. You gotta live, and it doesn't matter what people say about you, because at the end yeah. of the day, all that matters is what you what you do about yourself. It doesn't matter what people if it, let people talk. Let people talk about you. It doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, it's your life. And if you fall, you have to pick yourself up and you know dust yourself off and go. You know, right. keep going forward, and it's up to you. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people think of you. That is exactly well, true. But you gotta, just as long as you're being a good person, you, you do the best you can. So, And I like that message. That's why I give it a solid five. So, Well, this brings us to the end of the Let Your License podcast. Next month, we're going back to our Once Upon a Time with something that's a little bit darker. And that will be the film, as I get down to it, Watership Down, which is a um, written by Rich, the English author, Richard Adams. And, of course, Watership Down, the 1978 British animated adventure drama film. So after Christmas, if we need something a bit more into life. So if we don't commit suicide after that one, nothing will push us out of that point. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course, next week we'll be continuing with our Batman the Animated Series. But of course, if you do have Netflix, Batman the Animated Series is now on Netflix, so you can follow along. Are with they that. all in order? 
They're all in order, yes. Oh, they are? Hallelujah. Okay. Yay. <laughs> we'll be covering the Demon's Quest Part 1 and Part 2, Fire from Olympus, and Read My Lips episodes. And our two for one, we'll be covering The Music Man from 1962 and Island of Love from 1963. And this will continue our Morton da Costa Film Festival. And our anthologies, of course, will be led by Joe Randazzle. And then we'll be covering A Christmas Horror Story from 2015 and Tales from the Crypt from 1972, starring Joan Collins, Ian Henley, and Nigel Patrick and Rich Ralph Richardson. And, of course, Peter Cushion makes an appearance in that as well. And Doctor Who will be continuing with Myth to the Unknown and the Myth Makers, which originally aired from the 9th of October to the 6th of, 6th of November 1965. And Make Remake will be back for a special Christmas time episode. We'll be covering The Lion King from 1994 and the 2019 Realistic Lion King. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Leandro. Good night, everyone. Good night, Davide. Hi, everyone. Good night. Good night, Vicky. Out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking, I may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles in the window, carols at the spinet. Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. So climb down the chimney, put up the brightest string of lights I've ever seen. Slice up the fruitcake, it's time we hung some tinsel on that evergreen bough. For I've grown a little leaner, grown a little colder, grown a little sadder, grown a little older, and I need a little angel sitting on my shoulder, need a little Christmas now. Pull out the holly, haven't I taught you well to live each living day? Fill up the stocking, my daddy made, it's one week. Bring it through the-